Vincent Werbergs, Derby. Tonight we're looking at the line, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. And to preaching is Joe Whitehead. Joe um, is our, I'm pointing this by hoping that you're actually there, just guessing that Joe's there. Uh, Joe is our associate pastor. Uh, Joe turned up at St. Werberg's um, on the second Sunday in and um, decided she liked it and wanted to stay. And we were blessed by the fact that she's an ordained minister, that she was wanting to be part of us. And so she's been helping in particular, bringing some pastoral care to lots of people who are in need. And she's been utterly brilliant. And we are blessed to have her with us. She's going to tell a little bit more about her story in a few moments. But before Joe comes and preach, I'm going to read the story, uh, our passage to you tonight. So if you have a Bible, um, why don't you open it to Luke chapter 15. We're in a really, really famous part of Scripture. Jesus has been talking about things that are lost. He's talked about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and we get to the parable of the lost son this evening. And uh, I want to read this. This is Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said this to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant land, distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, but bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, You killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me 
and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Joe, why don't you come forward? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, that incredible passage, incredible parable. We thank you for all that you have spoken into Joe this week as she's prepared this. And we pray now, Lord, that you'll speak through her into our hearts and minds. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Phil. I love the way that Phil says Joe just turned up on the second week. <laughs> I did just turn up. We turned up because we were being nosy and we wanted to know what this HTB plant was doing in Derby because um, I'd heard all about HTB for years and the Alpha course and I wanted to know more about it and I've never been. I'm saying it again, Phil. I have never been to HTB in London yet. That's something I'd really like to do. But we came along here and... Um, we bumped into some people who I'd known for quite a few years who, were, who wouldn't mind me saying they were homeless. And I'd known them for a few years and they were there and they knew me and I knew them from my previous work. And they just, the, the welcome that they'd received here helped me to realise that this was the sort of place I wanted to be at. This had the sort of values where I wanted to be part of this church and it became a home to me and to my husband, Chris, as well. Um, as Phil said, I've been ordained for, oh gosh, over 11 years now. I'm really touched this evening because there's a lady here who knew me before I was ordained in my previous life when I was a teacher, and she was my classroom assistant, <laughs> and she's come along tonight, and I didn't know she was coming. And then <laughs> there's a gentleman there who knew me from when I was ordained. I was at his church. I was a curate, so he heard my first ever sermon. <laughs> oh dear, things haven't changed. You're in for a rough ride this evening. So... I was ordained um, over 11 years ago and I've worked in various churches around Derbyshire, but I've also uh, worked as a lead chaplain to the police and fire service, um, which took me into some interesting situations over the years. But when I first came to this church, I was struggling with mental health issues. I'd been off work ill and um, I still needed God. I need God every day in my life and I wanted to find a place where I could worship where I could find some peace and stillness, and I found it here. I found a welcome, I found understanding, I found that authentic community that, that we talk about, because I feel free to be able to express that I've had this illness and that people have supported me, and I stand here as a, a sort of a witness to that, that I have had and continue to look after my mental health. Uh, I've had a big, big problem with it, and I've been loved and valued and, and healed here as well. Thank you, God. So I want to say as well, I'm an unpaid associate pastor here because I'm still working out what God wants me to do. Where does he want me to go next? We're always on the move. We always have to listen to his voice. But I want to share with you that this is the first time I've preached in a long, long time. I did it this morning, but this is the first time today in a long, long time. And there were times when I never thought I'd be able to do this again. So bear with me. I've got some notes in case I go off track. I've been going to church for a very long time, a really long time, when the world was in black and white, 
and I was only two years old, I first went to church. I went to a chapel in the northeast, and I really enjoyed it because that chapel loved singing. It loved music, and I loved music. One of my favourite hymns is called, and I know a lot of you know it, And Can It Be? by John Wesley, yay, <laughs> the founder of the Methodist Church. In that hymn, Wesley asks, how can it be true that God loves me so much that his son died on the cross for me? And the really rousing part of the hymn, my favourite part, is in the last verse when we sing these words. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. Our modern worship songs today mention chains. There's quite a few of them that will talk about the breaking of chains. They've been influenced by John Wesley. Of course they have. That's such an important hymn. We know that there can be many, many emotional and physical chains stopping us from being the people that we want to be and the people that God meant us to be. And today we're looking at another statement from the Apostles' Creed. And it's this. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. Oh, I hope you're impressed. Sins. Sin. Sin. I'm actually going to talk about sin tonight. It's a scary word. It's a tiny word, but there's a lot packed into it. I've got quite a few non-Christian friends, believe it or not. I haven't managed to convert them yet, but I continue to pray for them. And one of my friends always challenges me, and she said this, I don't go to church because church is always going on about sin, telling me that I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner. I haven't murdered anybody. Well, murder is just one sin, and it's pretty extreme. I'm glad she's not a murderer because she's my friend. But it's an extreme thing, and that's what we think when we hear the word sin. It's such an unusual word. We don't use it in everyday language, I don't think. I certainly don't. When people hear it, they're really scared of it, and they think of the extreme thing. Well, sin means to miss the mark, to miss the mark of God's holy standards. Saint Augustine said that sin is a word, a deed, or a desire in opposition to the laws of God and our relationship with God. And the theologian Tim Keller said that idolatry is often the root cause of our sin. When we make something or somebody more important than God, we are sinning. And we often make ourselves more important than God. So, all humans sin. I sin. Do you sin? I know I do. All humans sin, and all Christians say it in the creed. In some churches, they say it every week. They say the creed, I believe. The creed is full of statements. I believe in the God the Father. I believe, and I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So you believe that sins exist. You believe in the forgiveness. All humans sin, and all humans always have. Right from the beginning of time, in the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve chose to eat from the apple that they'd been told not to. They were tempted by Satan. Why? Because
because God gave them free will to choose and he gives us free will how to choose to live. It's really easy to be tempted, like Adam and Eve were, to build our lives and meaning on other things rather than God. The media, and especially social media, and our peers put an enormous amount of pressure on us to be conscious of our image, to look a certain way, eat certain foods, wear certain clothes, so that we've got the right things, so that we fit in. And because we long to be accepted by people, we often follow the crowd, we follow what people tell us, so that we can fit in and we can be popular. I worried about my own children being bullied at school for not having the right clothes or having the right mobile phone. I worried about them not mixing with the right people, not doing the right things, not being part of the right club. Perhaps some of you know those worries too. We live in a competitive society, you know that. A society that wants the best, the best phone, the best cars, the best clothes. And we worry about not being accepted by people if we haven't got those things. And getting these things is so easy. You can all just put your hands in your pockets. Don't, but you could. Just get your smartphone out. You've got a signal. You can go onto the internet. It's just a few seconds away. And you can access money. You can go into your banking. You can get a loan. You can go onto gambling sites, shopping, dating sites. You can buy alcohol. You can contact your drug dealer. You can access pornography on your phone. It's so easy. It's so easy to be tempted to do those things 24-7, wherever we are, as long as we've got a mobile phone signal and a Wi-Fi signal. But the good news is, the good news is, that God wants the best for us too. He wants the best for us, just like parents want the best for their children. But having what is best for us isn't the high that we might get from our possessions and our quick fixes. The best for us is to live in relationship with God. And I'm sorry to remind you of another thing that we don't always talk about, but there will come a time when we will die. Some of the things that we've been tempted by may actually kill us earlier than if we hadn't taken them before. And when we die, we'll leave behind all those possessions that we were so bothered about. We can't take our cars or our clothes or our possessions. We can't take them. Somebody else will sort those out for us. None of those go with us. None of them really matter. Because possessions and other people's opinions cannot truly fulfill us. And ultimately, they can't save us. Only God can do that. But unlike us humans who struggle to forgive, I struggle to forgive, I'm sure that you struggle to forgive, God, our Father, Almighty, Almighty, all-being, all-knowing, he can forgive all his people, no matter what they've done. His love is amazing and his forgiveness is amazing. It's so difficult for us to comprehend that. And it's so difficult that Jesus told a story about it to help us. Whenever anything was difficult, he told a story. 
He told the story of the prodigal son, the son who wanted fulfillment, satisfaction and happiness. He thought he'd get that in another country, living a different lifestyle. So he set off to leave his father. But he asked his father for his inheritance first because he wasn't going to get a job. He was going to spend his father's money. Now his father listened to him. He advised him against it. But knowing that he was determined to do it, he gave him his inheritance. That was really unheard of at the time. It's quite unheard of now to give somebody their their inheritance before you've died. But he did it. And of course, the son went off into a distant country and he squandered his wealth on wild living. He ended up in desperation, looking after farmers' pigs, living with them, eating with them, actually envying some of their food. And then one day, he started to reflect. He started to think about what he'd done and think about his father back at home. And he realized that his life was much better there and that even if he was one of his father's servants, he'd have been treated better. And so he makes an important decision. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He was so filled with remorse. But then he acts on that decision. He doesn't just sit there with that thought, I'm going to go and do this. He actually does it. He got up and he went to his father. He started back home, and while he was still a long way off, and you can imagine it, he's probably got his head down low. What is his father going to say? How is he going to go back? The shame, the guilt. And he walks towards his father's home. And even when he's a long, long way off, his father saw him. And what did he do? He ran down the road. He ran to him and he threw his arms around him. He held him and he kissed him. And this picture shows that desperation of him just throwing. Just, he looks so weak and his father's just gathered him up in his arms and he's held him. And it shows the intense love of the father. It's just such an important image, the story of the father holding the son that so many artists have drawn this image, have tried to, to show what this looks like. And this image is by somebody called Charlie Mackesy. And this painting was used to form a sculpture which is outside Holy Trinity Brompton Church. It's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. I hope you do too. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. But the father's actions speak louder than any words. He holds him and he holds him tight because he's already forgiven him. The Bible says that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. And so the father threw a party for his son. Now, not all of us have lived lives like the prodigal sons. And Jesus knew that. And so there's another important person in the story, the brother out in the field. When he discovered that his younger brother had returned home and that their father was throwing a party for him, he became angry and he complained to his father, 
All these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But the father is insistent. He assures his older son that everything he has is his. He will get his inheritance, but that they have to celebrate his brother coming home. He was lost and he's found. He was dead and he's alive again. He has to celebrate it. Are we like the younger brother, rebellious and reckless? Or are we like the older brother, resentful and judgmental, unloving and jealous? I've been like that brother. I was like that with my sister when she got into some rebellious years. I was really, really quite judgmental of her and used to tell my parents things that she'd done and I thought I was better than her and I was quite unloving towards her. And every time I heard this story before, I understood the reason. I used to go, well, I'd be like that brother and I don't blame him for feeling like that. And then, as I've got older, I understand it more. We might be rebellious, we might do bad things, we might do wild things, or we might be judgmental and jealous and resentful. And we might just be going through the motions of our Christian life, going to church week in and week out and not actually in a heartfelt relationship with Jesus Christ. However we sin, we are reassured that God forgives us and God forgives others. It's really, really hard for us sometimes to accept that God forgives people who've done the most terrible things. And it's sometimes really hard to accept that God forgives us. But God isn't restricted by our human understanding and our experiences. He's our Father Almighty. He's all-knowing, He's all-loving and all-forgiving. Only He can truly know what somebody has gone through. And only he can truly know what's on someone's heart when they go to him. Only he knows the truth, whether people are truly repentant, and only he is the judge. We can't truly comprehend the enormous depth of his love, but we can experience it. We can experience it for ourselves, and we can allow him to transform us, and we can see it working in other people. As Phil said, people have come to this church and had changed lives and been transformed, and we've seen that in two years. And we can see it, and I hope you've seen it in other people around you. I know of that transforming power at work in my heart, and I know that in my father's heart too. My dad was a really angry man. He went to the pub every day, that wasn't unusual where we lived in a little village in the northeast. Lots of northeastern miners did the same thing. But when he was made redundant by the coal board in the 1980s, he began drinking heavily and he began gambling heavily. And he became an alcoholic, totally dependent on having a drink every day as soon as he got up. On many occasions, he lost control and he was physically and emotionally abusive to me, my mum and my sister. He built up huge debts and he lost our family home. It was repossessed. My mother was totally ashamed and she's totally ashamed still today. She carries that with her now. 
He reached a breaking point in his life because he became very ill suddenly and he spent a long time in hospital. And while he was there, we prayed for him. My children were really young then and they used to pray for him and write little prayer cards for him and send them to him. And the hospital chaplain visited him. I was quite cold-hearted towards him at that time. I didn't really speak to him. It was really, really difficult. One day I visited him in hospital. If I'm honest, I didn't really want to go and see him. But when I saw him, he was curled up in his bed. He looked half the size he really was, and he was weeping. He was broken, totally broken. He could only say one word to me, and it was so hard, he had to write it down. And it was, sorry. Now, it was awful. It was one of the most painful experiences of my life, and I can't tell you how much my heart ached for my dad, how much my heart ached for him to see him in so much anguish. So with the support of the hospital, he broke his alcohol addiction, and then with the support of this wonderful hospital chaplain who he, who he trusted, Dad actually turned to God and asked for his forgiveness. And... Um, it changed his life completely. It didn't change overnight. It took my dad a really long time, even when he'd asked for forgiveness, to accept that God had really forgiven him. And it took a long time for him to trust in God. It took years, but he did. He changed and he transformed. He became peaceful. He became sort of self-assured that God loved him and it gave him self-worth and confidence. And he stopped walking around with his head low and he, he stood with more sort of self-esteem and confidence. But for me, what was lovely was it softened his heart and he became peaceful. And I got my dad back. I got the dad back that I was supposed to have just for the last few years of his life. And we had a great relationship. I'm so grateful for that. But throughout my ministry, I've seen so many people find the peace and transformation that they've been longing for when they've been trying to find it in other things. And when they've come to God and asked for his forgiveness and his help. I've seen it when I've been ministering with other people to people on the streets. I've seen it obviously in churches. I've seen it in prisons, in drug and alcohol rehab centres that I've visited this year. I've seen it at work when I worked with the police and fire station. I talked to police officers and fire officers and I've seen their lives be transformed and I've known it in my own life. I've shared that with you. In the film, The Mission, if you haven't seen it, it's great. It's got Robert De Niro in it, if anybody likes Robert De Niro. The mission is about, a, there's a man who's a slave hunter, that's Robert De Niro, the character. And he's been taking native South American tribes people for slaves. And he himself is converted to Christianity. He's completely repentant when he's converted. He sees the error of his ways and he can't believe what he used to do. He's ashamed of what he used to do. And he seeks forgiveness from God and he seeks forgiveness from the people that he persecuted. And he wants to demonstrate how sorry he is. So he gets a large bag and he fills it full of heavy weights and he ties it 
and he gets it tied to him and he walks for days and days and climbs up mountains with this heavy, heavy bag on his back. And we've got a picture that shows the strain of him carrying that heavy, heavy bag. And then he stops for a moment, and this is the moment when he stops in the film. And this tribesperson goes towards him with a knife, and I think everybody's thinking the worst. He's like going for him with a knife. But he cuts the rope free. He cuts the rope and he pushes, this tribesman pushes the bag over the top of a waterfall and releases him of that bag. It's really powerful. And that's him released of that bag and being hugged and kissed and all those people cheering and the difference in his face is incredible. That's the transformation of God. That's what happens when we let go of the sin and the shame and the guilt and everything that we carry around and we give it to God and we receive his forgiveness. We can't comprehend the depths of God's love because we're just humans. But that's where our faith comes in. We can believe and trust in something even though we don't fully understand it. I don't know everything about God. Phil, I'm sure you don't know everything about God. No one does. But the one thing I know for certain is that I need him. I need him every single day. I've needed him all the way through my life. I needed him when I was little at home. I needed him and I knew he was there for me and it saved me, he saved me and he's changed my life and he will change anybody's lives who go to him. Christians don't follow Jesus because we think we're perfect. Christians follow Jesus because we know we're not perfect. We know we're not perfect and we need God. We need Jesus every day. Just like the father in the story of the prodigal son, our heavenly father has been waiting for us. He's been searching for us in the stories that we heard, the lost coin and the lost sheep. We know that God searches for us. He longs for us to turn to him. He's waiting for us, waiting with arms open wide, waiting for us to lay those heavy weights down, put those burdens down so that he can cut the rope, break the chains and set us free from our guilt and our shame. We all need his love. We all need his forgiveness. And we all need his freedom. It's not easy for us to resist the temptations we have in our daily lives, but nothing, nothing, believe me, will give us the happiness and peace and joy that can only completely be found in a relationship with God. Scott, who goes off to to help with the food bank, he testified to that at his baptism and said that nothing, no highs that he had had, meant as much, or, or nothing was as high as the love that he found in God. And like the father in the story, God is waiting for us. It's what Jesus came to earth for. And it's what he died for, for us to be saved from our sins. 